0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have Douglas Rushkoff on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Present Shock, when everything happens now. As some of you who listen to this show know, I am by training a historian, so this book frightened the pants off me because Doug basically says that the past is disappearing. Um, and then I would be out of a job. As if, yeah, so that, that's that's sort of disturbing for me. So, um, Doug, this is a frightening book for me. So uh, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Sure, absolutely. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, sure. Uh, my name is Doug Rushkoff. I, uh, I'm a, I guess I'm a media theorist by trade. I was originally a theater director and then became interested in kind of multimedia opportunities and why people were, where, that I knew from my youth were getting involved in computer technology in the in the mid '80s and late '80s, and I got involved in the whole internet thing and got very excited by the promise of of the net, especially the you know the dream of everybody working at home in their underwear in their own time. <laughs> and then I uh, kind of watched as the the internet as a social phenomenon became. The internet as dot-com boom and the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange and human attention seemed to become the new commodity. And instead of using this stuff to make more time and less work for ourselves, it seemed that we were using the net to make less time and more work for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, And that really kind of led me to uh, start thinking about the issues. That, uh, that that I talked about in present
0: shock. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice segue into my next question, which you know, and that is, why did you write this book? What really spurred you to write it?
1: Um, a few things. I mean, one was my uh, 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 the shift in my own perception of time and and uh, time availability. Uh, you know, in a, in a very topical sense, just the way the net distracts us and our attention gets divided between all these different things and hours and days seem to go by. And when have, when, have, when have you last touched the ground and looked into people's eyes and experienced sort of organic group cohesion and things like that. So that was on my mind in a, in a, in sort of an immediate way, but I've had a very good kind of a long standing, uh, uh, I, I've been in, for a long time. I've been investigating the way we, sort of organize reality temporally. I've been very interested in stories and the way that Aristotle looks at stories having beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, you know, I was a theater director, so I was really interested in temporal experiences and in how stories and values and things are conveyed over time. And when are people in, in, in charge of their time and when are they kind of thrown out of time? In other words, what are the different ways that uh, uh, persuasive individuals and and, and institutions that kind of throw us out of human time in order to convince us of things, in order to unsettle us, in order to induce regression and transference and things like that. So, I mean, I've, for for a, a very long time, I've been interested in uh, sort of the the relationship of what we might call Kronos and kairos, the two. Greek notions of time,
0: mm-hmm. time
1: of the clock, which is Kronos, and then human time, which is Kairos, and how do the different ways in which we define Kronos historically, and how have those changed the, the, the relationship of people to the powerful institutions in their society, and, and what might understanding these things um, do to help us uh, kind of get the upper hand on our would-be controllers.
0: hmm well, I mean, I think about a lot about time myself, again, as a historian, and I used to live in the 16th century, at least a lot of my friends would claim that. Um, so I, I studied vast swathes of time, and, and now I don't really do that anymore, and I think I'm, as you say in the book, sort of trapped in the present. The book is divided into a number of sections, and I think the best way to convey what's in it is actually to go through them. In In the first one, you talk about uh, narrative, that is stories, and how narratives have been collapsed. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, really, simply, a device like a remote control or a, or a DVR, you know, changes the way—it uh, it changes our uh, uh, ability to move through a story in our own way. Whereas, you know, our dad touched sit on the couch and watch a television program or a commercial from beginning, middle to end, you know, we can we can escape the captive spell of the narrator. You know, any, any, how we want, you know, by just changing the channel, we can leave. Um, so they no longer have a captive audience and they, they, uh, have a, a, a lot more of a challenge trying to, um, uh, bring us through a traditional narrative art the way, the way they might have been able to do. Before you know, they need just like Shakespeare did at the beginning of his plays when he would say, "Oh, pardon, gentle, to all of it. Mm-hmm. We would presume to do this to you, please forgive us. You know, it's really the same thing. Now they have to um, really get our permission. You know, we have to voluntarily surrender authority over over our time to them, and people are are much less likely and willing to do that. So we start to see our our entertainment really change from sort of uh, these these linear arcs with beginnings, middles, and ends to things that intended to have much more either immediate or even, you know, what we might call atemporal uh, uh, modes of communication. So you watch something like The Simpsons, where it's much less about beginning, middle, and end. Will Homer get out of the nuclear power plant before it blows <laughs> up? You know, that matters much less than the sort of the moment-to-moment connections that we're making between things. Oh, this scene is a satire of that commercial, and this scene is a satire of that. And so we're making connections in real time as we go through this experience rather than uh, looking toward the future. Or a political movement today will have a whole lot less to do with uh, keeping our eyes on the prize and the long march toward a particular goal and have much more to do with... Uh, you know, what are we doing right now? How is this process um, changing us or, or changing the world? It's um, you know, very much like, uh, say, you know, the Occupy movement, which is really a presence-based movement. They're much less concerned with their long-term goals than they are with their, uh, you know, processes, that what they're doing
0: right now to reach consensus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always kind of think of it, well, after reading your book, I had thought of this before, but I, I think the media have become kind of a highlight reel. Because I remember when the, I used to play a lot of basketball and watch it in the uh, 80s, and I remember when the highlight, highlight reel first appeared. I'm like, oh, this is great. You get to watch all the best plays. You don't watch any games. You just watch the best plays. And, uh, the, yeah. yeah the well, game, yeah,
1: and, yeah, yeah, exactly. I used to think about that in terms of Broadway. It's like you go see Jerome Robbins Broadway. It was this musical reviewer that was basically the last song of every <laughs> Jerome Robbins musical so it's just, these kicked by climax, 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 yeah. climax, climax, climax. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. You know, so there's no song. It's not like some Neil Young song that has the beginning, middle, and then yeah. just bam, 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 bam. You know, or, uh, you know, it's funny. Steve Soderbergh uh, mentioned this book. Uh, he was on a, he was on a plane ride, apparently, and he saw a guy pull out a, uh, an iPad and start watching uh, a movie on the iPad. And then he realized the guy wasn't watching a movie. He was watching the shoot, the, the action scenes. And explosions of a whole bunch of movies <laughs> all strung together. He was like, "Oh my God, that's present shock! I get
0: it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So then, you know, another thing that uh, occurred to me is the way my uh, my five year old son thinks about narrative, and he thinks about it in terms of levels in um, computer games. That's his sort mm-hmm. of understanding of it. I'm on level six now. I'm going to get to level seven. Yeah, that's his. Yep. his understanding of story. Um, and so, again,
1: video games are real time narrative, right? Yeah, you are. are the
0: protagonist.
1: You're not watching some story that's happened to somebody else. at Some point in time, you are living a story in real
0: time in a choice to choice fashion. Hmm. Hmm. That's yeah. That's that's interesting. Do you think this is bad that we've lost narrative in this way?
1: Good things and bad things about it. I mean, it's good in that we've released ourselves from the the narrative captive spell of storytellers who may not have our best interests at heart, it's bad in that we no longer have um, uh, uh, this very particularly effective means
0: of generating solidarity and conveying values over time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I think about it to to, to harken back to what you said. I, I think Aristotle would not like it, but I think Plato would love it because he really didn't like drama very much. Yeah, there he, really, you go. he hated stories. Yeah, <laughs> he thought they corrupted you. So
1: yeah, so that's you would have said it was all decadent anyway. Yeah, yeah. so we
0: have a new kind of uh, neo-Platonism in action. So the uh, let's move on to the second part, and that is a digiphrenia, and this is the one that really uh, that, that I really identified with. It that, that is the um, what you describe as um, this is my own words, but the sort of desire to be in so, be someplace else while you're someplace to be to be always be someplace else, and and I see this yeah everywhere I mean, now exactly you know in the in the sort of the video game logic that we were talking
1: about before when you move from choice to choice to choice to choice you know we live in a world that says well you can actually you don't have to choose you can choose both. You, know, you can choose to be here and there at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can have more than one. I mean, it's not enough to pay attention to something like it was in the old days. Now you have to pay attention to two different things at the same time or have multiple identities uh, simultaneously consuming and producing. Uh, you know, So you've got you on Facebook and you on Twitter and you on Tumblr and you on Instagram, all these identities. And they're actually doing things on your behalf when you're not even there. You know, Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg is advertising your picture. You know, and and you are endorsing things that you may never have heard of while you're asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're going to wake up and you're going to have to answer for that the next day. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's uh, it, digitphrenia really is that. It's that uh, uh, that, that sense of, of mental confusion. You know, that comes with trying to be in more than one place at the
0: same time. Yeah. And, and this has become totally u- ubiquitous in, in places that I would have thought 10, 15 years ago it would not have been. So, for example, in my family, uh, we will get together occasionally, and half of the people there will be looking at their cell phones while we are together. I mean, I, this used to be very unusual. You'd see people at a cafe with two, two cell phones, and you'd be, that's very odd. But now it's extraordinarily common. You go to a cafe to read your email together. I have strict rules about it in my
1: house. I mean, I'm obviously a, online. I'm a quite, you know, a, a pro-technology person. But at dinner, it's like, no, these devices are off. Unless, you know, Grandma's dying. Right. We're not going to pick up the phone. I remember the, the New York Times review, which is great. Great review for this book. Kind of a life-changing review came in, and we're at dinner cell phone starts vibrating, the phone starts ringing, everything starts singing. Yeah. and I'm like, I'm not getting up, we're not getting up, we are not <laughs> answering it. Then we hear the phone, the, someone's leaving a message on the phone machine, oh my god, you got this review, oh my god, have you seen this thing? And, and uh, I wife's like, you can check the computer, it's okay. I'm like, no. I'm yeah. not going to read that, I'm not going to look at that computer until after dinner.
0: Yeah, I tried to fight this battle in my own family, and that is my extended family, and I, I basically just lost. I just realized I would be a pariah if I insisted on this in my own house. So I don't do it. it. You know, I I really don't. And I used to tell people that, you know, I lost my cell phone for six months. You really can't lose your cell phone for six months. I chose not to have a cell phone for six months, and it was a nice time. But now I'm I've kid. You the
1: the funny thing is you lose lose a device like that. You do something like that. You actually end up um, better uh, uh, and more coherent, more grounded. You actually end up more highly functional. When you, when you are exercising autonomy and agency over your use of these things right. and when you passively accept the way they come at you.
0: Right. Well, I was just in another kind of family incident. I was told recently, I sometimes turn it off when I'm doing something like playing with the kids, and I was told in no uncertain terms by somebody who really wanted to get a hold of me not to do that anymore. I'm like, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm like okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, it's a, I mean, I think it's kind of a generational thing because the person that said this is younger than I am, and, and I, you know, I grew up without any of this stuff. So I, you know, it's right. go outside and come back when the street lights come on, um, and, and so it's it's very yeah. I find it astounding. I mean, I remember I used to be a, a kind of a dean at a, at a university, and I had, uh, you know, I was managing like six six hundred undergraduates. And I used to eat with them in the dining hall, and I said I made a rule: no cell phones. And it was mm-hmm. very clear after about um, a month that that was just a totally lost cause. That the tide was coming in, and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't enforce it. Right. So, yeah, it just was impossible. Um, so, well, you know, there, there you go. So um, let's go on to the next one. I, if I think it's actually we're recalling all this now. Um, overwinding. Uh, what is overwinding? Right. Yeah.
1: Overwinding is just when, you know, if you live in a timeless reality, there's still people trying to pack huge, wads of time into teeny little moments. It's sort of the way, the way um, you know, on the stock market where people, you don't buy something. In order to invest in some future, you're not buying a stock in order for it to go up a year or two or five from now. You're buying a stock to make money on the trade. You know, Facebook launched and people bought it in the morning and they were upset 10 minutes later when the stock hadn't gone up and they all sold it and called it a failure. Mm -hmm. You know, so people, if they're not happy buying the stock now, so then they'll buy They'll so buy a derivative of the stock, which is literally that stock 30 days in the future. Mm-hmm. Then, if they're not satisfied with that, then they buy a derivative of that derivative, which is a derivative 30 days in the future. <laughs> so, there's compression, all this temporal compression going in. It gets to the point where the derivatives market, where this temporally compressed market is bigger than the real one. So, the New York Stock Exchange was actually purchased by the derivatives exchange. Mm-hmm. That means the New York Stock Exchange was consumed by its own temporal abstraction, which is just absurd. But it just goes to show you that the the overwhelmed market, you know, and the overwhelmed reality, this reality of temporal compression is, is becoming bigger and weightier than the reality of time passing in the way it actually does. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I, I guess I think, again, this was very interesting to me as a historian, because historians talk about, um, I guess we would call them factors that operate in the very long term that affect almost everything these have just been lost completely in the kind of rush of data about moments. And people are willing to attribute uh, causality to things which are sort of surface events. They don't really, they, they, they contribute to things, but they're not causing things. And, and I just... Thought- yeah, it is fascinating. that sort of these, these long
1: tail effects of things. Like the one that I keep looking at is the invention of central currency, you know, and something ends up, you know, sitting there uh, as the status quo, you know, unit of exchange for so long, we forget that it was an invention. Yeah. You know, that it was invention invented at a very particular moment in history with very particular embedded biases mm-hmm. that may or not be serving people today. And they forget that they were other tools. They forget. You know, so and that's that's another really symptom of present shock that we're so kind of uh, in a sense lost in this thing that we think is the present moment that we, uh, you know, become incapable of doing, you know, appropriate critical analysis of the underlying landscape and the institutions that we're, we're accepting
0: as reality. Mm-hmm. And I think the underlying assumption of overwinding really is that the world is so insecure as to be kind of anxiety-making all the time, that nothing is stable, everything is changing all the time. Now, this is, you know, a Buddhist would tell you this is true, but it is kind of nervous-making to, you know, I'm reminded of the advice that you're, broker or the person that, um, um, who manages your money. He always says, look, we're going to invest your money. Or she says, we're going to invest your money. Don't look at it. Nobody does that. Right. <laughs> Nobody can do that. Yeah. You know, you, cause you know, you have the screen, you can just pop it up. You can see how your money markets did that day. And so you're constantly engaged in this thing. You don't feel stable. you like, you can lose it at any moment. And, uh, in, in,
1: yeah, but the also other reason they tell you to invest your money and not look at it is if you invest your money and it goes down. Yeah. I had my money with one of these guys, you know, and it's like 15 years later, so I'm being diligent. I'm not looking at it. You know, for, I do it once, like five years later, there's less money than there was when I started. <laughs> yeah. Do it again 10 years later, there's no more money than I put in. And yeah. except the money that they took out as fees. And I'm yeah. like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. What the
0: heck is going on here? I'll give you the name of my broker when you're done. But I do remember when the, you know, the recent crash occurred. Uh, you know, what was it five years ago now, and uh, my, my wife kind of freaked out. And I had invested money before, and I said, you know, this is going to be back exactly where it was in, let's say, five to seven years. And I was right. Yeah. You know, I didn't freak out. I mean, I was right. We didn't touch anything. It's back right where it was. Because um, there are these kind of long-term yeah. trends. There is a kind of robustness to the system, which I think is lost in this chasing the present moment and checking everything all yeah. the time. The highlight reels of your investment is really not what you want to look at. You want to look at long right. ter- like long-term performance. It's like your government. You want to look at long-term performance, not that you know Barack Obama had two scandals this week and so his presidency is over. But you know what? His presidency isn't. Yeah, over. <laughs> that's that's just not, not right. Yeah. That's not right at over all. Over before it began. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That just isn't right. That's that highlight reel thing, and you're going to be confused by that because they're just large sort of large structural elements of. Life that that go on um, past this sort of flood right. of data, you can't, you know, it's like, you can get too upset about it. But so let, let's move on um, to the next section of the book, if I can recall uh, correctly. And, and this is related, and it's how we come to kind of make sense of the the, the whole world without a, a kind of long timeline. How do we make sense of of our life in time? Did I characterize that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I call it fractal noia, yeah, which right. is a, uh-huh. maybe it's a convoluted term, but I mean, what we But we're living in a world where we no longer have really discrete feedback cycles. Like in the old, old days, you know, if you were a farmer, you know, you would put your seeds, uh, you know, six inches apart. Three months later, you'd see how they grow in, and that's your feedback. And then you can change. You can say, oh, I'm going to put them further apart next time or put them closer together. You have a marketing strategy. You put out an ad. You see a couple months later whether people bought more of your thing or less. And then you can either change the ad or run the same ad or not run any ad at all. You know, now, cause and effect are, are, are merged. You can't really tell in an instantaneous society what's a cause and what's the effect. Did we just do a marketing program, or are we responding to a tweet, or is the tweet responding to us? It's mm-hmm. like everything is just buzzing, buzzing by. And what what you know scientists and, and technologists have used to understand these sort of rapid feedback cycles is usually as fractals. You, know, you take something like the the instead of the screech of a microphone pointing into a speaker, you can use a computer to draw, to slow down, if you will, and draw out that uh, feedback cycle, these loops, and you get these kind of beautiful paisley drawings that, uh, are, they're of fractals You know that most of us now mm-hmm. are familiar with, and they're reassuring on a certain level because they have so similarity. This part of the shape is like that. They look like natural things. The, the danger is when we Equate one part of a fractal with another, where we say, "Oh, this is the same as that; it's the same Mm. as that." They're not the same; they're just similar. They have a similar pattern. There's an underlying logic or rhythm to it. It doesn't mean that it's lockstep. It doesn't mean that earthworms are people, our civilizations are the weather, are the stock market. You know, all Mm -hmm. these things are similar, but you can't just draw exact conclusions. And really, what happens in A society that's living in the exact present tense, that's exactly in the moment. If you don't have a story, if you don't have cause and effect to sort of figure out an underlying logic, you tend to try to draw conclusions based on a static photograph of the moment. You know, you draw lines between things. This is like that, is like that. You end up in this kind of almost a paranoid um, conspiratorial view of the world because everything needs to be connected to everything else in order for things to make sense because you no longer have stories, you no longer have history um, through which to analyze things.
0: One of the things that I've noticed is that even when the media tries to explain to people that things are actually happening in the long term, that there's these long term sort of structural effects, that they don't listen because it takes a little bit of time to explain what those structural effects are. So, for example, when they give long-term averages on the stock market, I don't think people really understand this, and I don't think they really accept it.
1: You see what I right. mean? Right. I yeah. mean, well, also, yeah, also part of the reason they don't accept it is because, you know, past results are no, uh yeah, <laughs> you know, right. of, of the future. You know, there's there's people uh, we don't know, um, even, even logically, you know, we don't know whether this last 50 years of, of, stock market growth is uh, necessarily you know the way the next fifty years plays out there's there 's often a sense and that 's kind of the last chapter of the book there 's often this sense that things are are ending mm-hmm. you know this this what I call apocalypto mm-hmm. and uh, you know and throughout history we've we 've almost always felt like we 're the last thing that we 're in apocalypse and something's ending but you know, in this case, somehow it does feel like corporate capitalism and expansionist banking policy um, may have reached its limit. You know that that we're certainly at the limit of the kind of the globe's capacity to uh, uh, provide more uh, frontiers for expansion. You know, we don't have more territory. There's not more brown peoples that we can enslave and mm-hmm. steal their stuff. Mm-hmm. So exactly where do we expand to? Mm -hmm. Um, And if we don't have a place to expand, if we don't have new markets, um, then how could the economy keep growing the way it's been growing? You know, Mm -hmm. it kind of can't. So people start to consider various forms of endgame, you know, whether it's the zombie apocalypse in the (laughs) distant future or the singularity replacing human beings or, you know, some, you know, economic uh, catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't blame people. For, for, you know,
0: considering those possibilities. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would say, again, uh, just historically speaking, this is just my opinion, that um, although I don't necessarily disagree with you, every time somebody has said uh, either capitalism or science has reached a kind of terminus, they've been wrong. Uh, because in each of these cases, and the, people have said this since the mid-19th century, especially with science. Right. That, you know, we know everything we're going to know, and that's it. You know, I remember I reviewed a book recently that described the way things are, and I'm like, we have no idea the way things are and more will be revealed. And similarly, I think with uh, right. you know economic expansion, um, there's a lot of room yet for economic e- expansion. At least I, I think that there is, but, but this desire to have an ending, I guess I would think of it in a little bit different way. Um, when I read your chapter about the, the, zo- the zombie business and <laughs> it's very funny, the zombie business is that, you know, I, I think it's a desire for um, meaning more than anything else. And, you know, uh, my my life uh, now. I can see this now was largely structured, at least in its earlier years, by the Cold War. I fought communism mm-hmm. and I won. You know, I was a Russian historian and the government paid me to become a Russian historian and I wrote books about Russia and warned people about Russia and said communism was a bad thing. And uh, that gave my life. Right. And now I'm like, well, what do I have now? I mean, I, what do I have? I have. I got to get the next um, iPhone. That's just not very satisfying. You know, it's just it doesn't. Right. It, doesn't it doesn't. You know, my. I, I don't know what I'm living for now. I just don't see, you know, again, and this sort of harkens back to, we had uh, Francis Fukuyama on the, on the show, you know, he's the end of history. There's something to that. You know, it's like the Chinese are even on board. The Russian are on board with our program. Everybody seems to right. be except Hugo Chavez, and he's dead. So, um, so who mm-hmm. isn't with our program? And so it, it kind of makes it, right. you know, and that's why we just added attention to what is really a small number of of, of Al-Qaeda terrorists. I mean, it really sort of small potatoes mm-hmm. compared to, I don't know right. Nazi Germany or something. You know, this is just nothing, uh, and and so I, I just think it's kind of a desire for for meaning, and, and, and there's not a lot of meaning out there. Again, in the blizzard of promotional emails, I get about um, you know what was the news yesterday? This was big news that uh, that what was it? It was Yahoo bought Tumblr. I mean, why do I care about that? But it was like yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah. why do I care? I don't care. I don't care about that at all. That is not news. Me that one big right. corporation bought another big corporation. I just don't care. But somehow the media cooks this up, and that's supposed to give me meaning. I, it doesn't really work for me very well. Um, so, right. uh, h- how do you see? Uh, I mean, I guess you know the, the kind of money question is is here, and I, I know it's a difficult one to ask. Is is this uh, good for us or bad for us? I mean, I go, you know, again, uh, the obvious answer is both. But go ahead and to tackle it.
1: It depends, you know it depends there's good and bad things. I think the good and bad is is a dangerous construct, you know, except when we're really talking about you know things of with with uh, they, about which we can can have absolute moral conviction you know it's bad to put Jews in gas chambers, you know it's bad, but um you know when we're talking about cultural change, it's very hard to call it good or bad, you know I think that the the opportunity here is for people to um, embrace the moment that they're actually living in, to you know restore some relationship to to kairos to human time, mm-hmm. to extract themselves from the sort of the hypnotic acceleration of the industrial age, and you know begin to embrace uh, a much more human peer to peer and social relationship to time and one another. Um, on the other hand, if we use this as an opportunity merely to extend the agendas of the industrial age into the, uh, uh, into the digital age, um, we now have tools that can uh, you know, uh, dangerously accelerate and exacerbate um, some of the worst of what we've had in the last century. And uh, I I just think it just shows we're now more obligated than ever to um, seize our agency and to become, you know, the true, uh, you know, programmers and and masters of our realm. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, I I guess, you know, having read your book, one thing that occurred to me, I was reminded of another analogy, and this one is from athletics. Uh, There's a Swedish psychologist. I think it was Swedish. I don't remember. But he, he invented this notion called cold flow. Have you ever heard of this? So this is the state, yeah. in this is, this is a little bit, it's kind of a hypnotic state that you enter when you're playing competitive athletics or you're running or something like that. Basically, time stops and you lose orientation. You don't really know where you are because your mind is working in a kind of autonomic way all the time. And I experienced this many times right. in my own athletic career where I was just unaware of anything except the game because it was all going on so fast. It completely absorbed me. I had no, my brain could not process anything else. And it just seems to me that, that increasingly in my life, I feel like that. So much is coming at me all the time that I never have a chance to, to use a little bit of business jargon, um, pull up. This is when a boss of mine used to say. It's time to pull up, you know, and stop looking at the details and figure out where you are. I just don't feel like people have time to do this anymore because they're too busy right. checking their email. and And there's no notion of, you know, these bigger questions that you ask, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? This other sort of stuff that you have to com- contemplate and talk to people about is lost in a blizzard of, of uh, of uh, you know, it's of, of videos of exploding Coke bottles. And, and you know, right. highlight, highlight reels. You know, it's highlight reels. It's highlight reels everywhere. It's the best of everything. Because, you know, that's eventually when you talk about, you know, crowdsourcing, what is crowdsourcing good for? Well, the best thing it's good for is finding the best video of exploding Coke bottles. That, that's what really it is yeah. good for. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's a good thing uh, by, by any means. I'm not, I'm not as uh, hesitant as you are to say good or bad because you know <laughs> the other thing. Uh, well, uh, there, there are a lot. There's a lot of interesting things to say about uh, the acquisition yesterday of of Tumblr because it's it's a weird thing too. And I don't know. I, you know, I I agree, yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, I mean, Tumblr is a weird thing. But but I mean, I agree with you in general about this compression of of time. It's it's really quite remarkable how fast it has happened. And how we don't really know what it's doing with us. Is it making us sick? I don't think it's making us sick. Is it making us kind of unaware? I definitely think it's making us unaware. Yeah. I mean, the job of the historian is now impossible. You know, I have a, I have a mm-hmm. friend, you know, I study early modern medieval history, and she studies modern history, and she calls what I study the old stuff. I mean, <laughs> with kind of derision, you know. <laughs> like This is a PhD, you know, the old stuff. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you can see how, um, at least, you know, from from my perspective, it's difficult <laughs> to actually pull up from this stuff and and see where you are. I just don't see, Right. I don't see how you're going to do it really. And it, I don't know, it's, a, a, it's kind of disturbing to me. So let me ask a, another question before the final question is, uh, and you just talked about the New York Times book review. Uh, uh, how's the book been received?
1: Um, I think, well, I think people are, are in, you know, embracing this notion that we're living in a kind of a present shock. And I think they really do want to, um, and get some tools and ideas on how to orient themselves in this new temporal landscape. So, so far, it's been pretty much universally positive.
0: Mm-hmm. Nobody's come at you hammer and thong, tong and said, you know, this is ridiculous. anything like that. Nope, just good, huh? No. Yeah, I envy you no, very much. No, I haven't seen anything. I envy you very much. No. I really do, and I think thousands of authors all over the world do. So, uh, let me thank you very much for being on the show. Today, we've been talking to Douglas Rushkoff about his book, Present Shock. Um, Doug, thanks. And so let me ask you our uh, final question on um, the NewBooks Network, and that is what are you working on now? Do you have a project in the works?
1: Um, Yeah, I'm actually working on a a documentary for uh, PBS Frontline. Mm -hmm. It's tentatively called Generation Like. And uh, I'm looking at, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, sort of the new new landscape on which teens are being marketed to Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, you know, how is it different? How is it the same? And,
0: uh, and how does it work mm-hmm. well hopefully they'll produce an app for that and there'll be some in-app purchases for it because I know that that's, uh, bra- yeah, that's yeah. breaking me man so anyway today we've been talking with Douglas Rushkoff about present shock when everything happens now Doug thanks so much for being on the show uh, thank you it's just what you do